to Hello everyone. Welcome to this episode of Persone Extraordinaire. Through this interview series, I'm attempting to profile people who've made an extraordinary impact in their respective fields to engage and uplift others and help them be the best versions of themselves. I'm humbled and honored today to introduce to you Amanda Matthews, an incredible individual and a very talented artist whose remarkable work over several decades is an inspiration in countless ways. Amanda is an American sculptor and designer of large-scale public art and the space it inhabits. She's also a writer, public speaker, and the CEO of Prometheus Art, a design-built firm located in Lexington, Kentucky. Fairness, civil rights, community, and accessibility are central to Amanda Matthews' work. She serves as, a, as the pre president of the Artemis in Initiative's Board of Directors, chair of the Kentucky Oral History Commission, and is a founding member of the Monumental Women of Kentucky, a state commission. A graduate of the University of Louisville, she holds a BA in Studio Art and Philosophy and studied Fine Art and Architecture in Paris, France. She has also received 23 professional grants and several significant business awards, including the SBA Paysetter Award, NAWBO Business Owner of the Year Strive Award, and the National Association of Women in Construction Blue, Blue Grass Diamond Award, and was the honored speaker at the 2022 United Nations Foundation. Global Leadership Summit, Golab Division on Storytelling and Advocacy in Public Art. Her work has garnered national and international media, media coverage, including features for CBS, CB, CBS Saturday Morning and NBC News Now, alongside pieces in the New York Times, Washington Post, Forbes, NPR, All Things Considered, and the Smithsonian Magazine, which listed the Girl Puzzle Monument, third of nine must-see sculptural ins installations in the world. Matthew's works reside in the notable uh, collections such as New York City Public Art Collection, Kentucky Capitol Monument Collection, and the Hartsfield-Jackson At Atlanta Airport Collection. Welcome, um, Amanda, ma'am. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here with you this morning, Zen. Actually, it's evening where you are, correct? Yeah, it is. <laughs> That's wonderful that we can be together, even though it's early morning here and it's evening on the other side of the world where you are. It's such an honor to be able to have this conversation with you. It's an honor to interview you. Thank you so much for taking the time out to do this. No problem. So to start off, what is a fun fact about yourself? This can be a favorite animal, food, hobby, or anything else. Well, I live on a farm and I have pet ducks, um, which is a little bit unusual. Most people don't have pet ducks. Um, they go out during the day and then they line up when the sun goes down, they get out of the lake and follow me up to the barn where they sleep in a stall at night. Um, some of them can fly and others can't. So we built a ramp to an upper deck so they can walk up the ramp and spread out and claim their own space. Um, because we live on a farm, we also have horses and dogs, 
but pet ducks are so unusual and they always bring a smile to everyone's face. You're truly blessed to be residing in the lap of nature. And that sounds like so much fun, Amanda. I do hope I can visit you and your lovely farm sometime in the near future. Oh, my goodness. You are so welcome. We would love to host you here. Um, we do live in a very natural environment, and that is part of the inspiration for my work. And we would love for you to come visit. <clears throat> Thank you so much. So it's really rare that career paths follow a straight line from where they started to where they are today. Could you please share a little bit about your own journey? Who or what was your inspiration? And some interesting experiences along the way that shaped you as a person? Well, excuse me. I think you mentioned that I received a bachelor's degree from the University of Louisville in fine art and philosophy. But after I completed that degree, I went into the insurance industry, first handling automobile claims and fatality claims, but working my way up and ultimately working for a Fortune Global 500 company in public speaking, which was quite a rare opportunity for a woman at the time. I I really thought that I had broken through the glass ceiling when I was in my late 20s, but in my early 30s, I became pregnant with my first daughter and didn't realize that this is still an issue for some people. At four and a half months pregnant, you know, I began to show. And soon the call came in and I listened as one of the managers explained that a pregnant woman simply just wasn't the right look for such a prestigious firm. And I lost my job. I was in shock. I, I, poverty for me then became a lack of options for a visibly pregnant woman. So my career path certainly did not take a straight line. Um, I regrouped and decided to follow my first love, which is fine art. Um, it has still been a steep climb to where I am now, to becoming one of the few female CEOs of a bronze foundry, which is also a design build firm. And I have suffered other pretty big setbacks, but I think I have learned more survival skills by the opportunities that were taken from me than from the opportunities that were given. So as I look back over my career trajectory, I think that so much of what I've learned has been from the things that were taken from me. And my inspiration has always been um, nature for one, but but really my inspiration in general is to try to help create a less hostile world, a more welcoming world for my daughters um, than the one that I've had to navigate. And, and hopefully I will leave a small legacy in that vein. Wow, Amanda, that's a truly inspirational story. And if I may say so, it's also a huge lesson in following one's heart and in resilience and keeping the faith no matter what. I'm so, so glad our paths crossed. Me too. Actually, you mentioned, I think, in the bio about the United Nations Foundation Global Leadership Summit. And that's where we met, right? Because we were both speakers. We did, we did. That's wonderful. I was so happy to meet you and so impressed. And I still am so impressed. So thank you. 
I was equally impressed by your speech. I am so glad again, once again, that our paths crossed. Me too. <laughs> so you're an award-winning sculptor and a designer of public art, also a public speaker and the CEO of Prometheus Art, a design-built firm. Your works reflect a commitment to lifting muted and marginalized voices. But most importantly, I feel that your work has an emphasis on accessibility for all people. I've personally witnessed that ableism and social and structural issues like lack of accessibility continue to present barriers for people with disabilities around the world. What, in your opinion, are the best ways to tackle them? And how do you manage to make inclusivity the cornerstone of all that you create? Well, you are exactly right. Accessibility is an issue all around the world, everywhere I go. And it's interesting to start seeing things from a different lens. And I don't know if what I do are the best ways, but certainly one of the ways I try to tackle ableism is to surround myself with people of all abilities and to actually discuss with them what they need for full accessibility. And this helps me see things through their eyes. It helps me feel things through their hands. It helps me traverse a space in the way they would. So this includes physical access, but also visual and mental and emotional intellectual access, and even financial access. And that means that public art should never be behind a paywall or have a cost of admission because it limits so many people in the general public from being able to experience it. So in my opinion, creating safe, accessible spaces serve as a leveling field, which means that all people should have equal access regardless of their different abilities. One of my close friends, Debbie, she has a 32-year-old nonverbal daughter who has used a wheelchair her entire life. And I almost always consult Debbie on all of my large projects because if I can better understand how her daughter, Annie, can, can enjoy or participate in my work, then I can create that you know, for her. I have another friend who's legally blind and I ask them how they might experience some of my work. Um, in New York City, we have the giant faces, but uh, my friend who's legally blind said they would not be able to experience those huge sculptures. So we created small faces, only about 15 inches tall, so that she can actually feel those faces with her hands and experience and imagine the much, much larger faces. Um, and one of my very closest friends, Roger Chambliss, has also been my studio assistant for the past 14 years. He is a 62-year-old Asian-American man who has navigated schizophrenia since he was 18 years old. And he has such a unique perspective on what it means to create safe and accessible spaces. So these are just a few of the people who, who are my close friends, who I consult to ask, how do they experience these things? And how can I make my work accessible to all of them. Um, so those are the things that I do. 
kudos to you, Amanda. And that is very exciting and practical in equal measures. You know, there's a saying that has its origin in the Central European political tradition that later became a war cry during the 90s uh, disability activism. Nothing about us without us. What you're actually doing consciously and subconsciously is exemplifying that spirit. And I have to applaud you for your approach. Well, I, I, really, you should applaud the people who who I consult because they are willing to share their stories just like you are willing to share your story. And by doing so, you help me understand. And so I appreciate you and them because it helps me understand how you experience things. So thank you. Thank you. And, and I appreciate the, uh, I appreciate your wonderful compliment, but really if you weren't sharing your story and yourself with the world, we would not, uh, you know, you're making things much better. Thank you so much, Amanda. So Neil Marcus, an actor with a disability, once said, disability is not a brave struggle or courage in the face of adversity. Disability is an art. It's an ingenious way to live. Do you believe art in general is an important way to speak up about the lack of accessibility and ableism? Why? Yes, absolutely. And I do agree with what you said. Disability is an ingenious way to live. And I would think that most artists probably see the world a little bit differently than a lot of other people. So in this way, perhaps artists can understand uh, living in, in an ingenious way and trying to uh, understand the world around them differently. I think, though, that public art truly speaks about the community where it resides, because public art many times takes a community to create. Unfortunately, a lot of community art and public art does not speak about accessibility. So this is a great opportunity that we have to create spaces for accessibility. Here in the United States, especially in the South where I'm located, we still have so many public monuments that honor soldiers and specifically Confederate soldiers and leaders from our time in the American Civil War back in the 1860s. And many of these monuments to soldiers also honor people who were traitors and rapists and murderers. And the language that they speak is one of dominance rather than inclusion, rather than community. And this is an obstinate norm here in the United States and other parts of the world. But public art can create new forms and stories and icons, even stories and icons that act as threads to bind the wounds of, of abuse and, and persecution and inaccessibility. So having looked at these monuments and, and understand that the language of so many of the monuments that I see are more of dominance, I decided to focus on trying to reclaim some public spaces that were known for exploitation and by doing so, venerate silenced and marginalized voices and try to create healing spaces of inclusion. So 
ultimately my purpose is to speak in visceral terms, hopefully to a broad audience and reflect hope for a better future. Um, I've looked to many of my contemporaries to try to help guide me because I'm certainly not the first person, you know, to, to notice these things and, and to try to do something about it. I often look to a contemporary who has just passed away and she's also from Kentucky. Her name is Belle Hooks. And she wrote, um, as we critically imagine new ways to think and write about visual art, as we make spaces for dialogue across boundaries, we engage a process of cultural transformation that will ultimately create a revolution in vision. And I would add to this that it also creates a revolution in inclusion and accessibility. So I think public art is a perfect medium for us to create um, accessible spaces. That's actually very, very insightful, Amanda. And if I may just add one point, I believe that the best and perhaps even the simplest way to normalize disability is to destigmatize it and, uh, and the conversations around it and have them often at all levels. Children should witness that the new norm, the new normal, and only then will it come to them naturally. And the best way to spread those messages is in bite-sized, easily digestible pieces through the arts, whether it's music, painting, sculpture, drama, or even poetry. And that is where artists like you and teachers and parents, and in fact, every one of us stands to play a huge, huge role. Yes. And, and I think people, I think there has been a discomfort in discussing these things in the past. And we have, you said bite-sized pieces. Absolutely. We have to be able to safely discuss what people need and how we can assist each other and how we can function and live as a community. And I say, well, what I've said to my two daughters since the day they were born, we, you know, uh, we don't leave anybody behind. We can't leave anybody behind. And part of that dialogue is including everyone's voice. I agree completely with you. So finally, could you please share some parting calls of wisdom with our listeners on how we can make this world a kinder and more inclusive place to live in? Well, Hopefully, um, I don't, you know, I'm not an expert on these things, but it seems like there's a very easy answer to this that somehow seems to evade so many people. And that is that we should all treat others the way we would like to be treated. That is such a simple rule to follow. It is such a simple thing to just try to put yourself in someone else's shoes and try to understand what someone else needs. So. Um, I think if we could, again, like you said, let's break this down into bite-sized pieces. Let's make this very simple for people and continue to have a conversation around treating others the way you would like to be treated. Um, years ago, anthropologist Margaret Mead was asked by one of her students what she considered to be the first sign of civilization in a culture. And this very much speaks to community. And they expected her to talk about finding cl 
clay pots or tools for hunting or grinding stones or even religious artifacts as representations of civilization. But no, Mead said that the first evidence of civilization was a 15,000-year-old fractured femur bone found in an archaeological site that had been healed. And in the animal kingdom, you know, if you break your leg, you die. You can't run from danger. You can't hunt for food and, and, and get to water to drink. And if you're wounded in this way, you become basically meat for predators. You can't, you know, creatures can't survive a broken leg long enough for the bone to heal because they're eaten first. They, they become prey. So this healed bone is evidence that another human being had taken the time to stay with this person who was injured. They bound their wound. They probably carried the person to safety and they tended to them through recovery. So it's evidence that someone helped their fellow man rather than abandoning them to save their own life. And I think this is a perfect example of us understanding how we can make the world a better place. So Mead said, helping someone else through difficulty is really where civilization starts. She also said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. For indeed, that's all who ever have. So Zen, you and I just need to be those. We need to be that small group of thoughtful, committed citizens and, and just try in our best ways to show the rest of the world how we would like to be treated and live by example. I loved your response so much, Amanda. And I can tell you that I learned so, so much from interacting with you today. And your insightful and thought-provoking responses are food for thought for all of our listeners, young and old. And they are definitely, your responses will definitely help us all internalize how we can make this world a kinder and more inclusive place to live in. Well, I hope so. I hope that I have said something interesting to your listeners. Um, I am just blown away by what you are doing and what you have accomplished. I am so excited to see the next things you do and hopefully work with you in the future on 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 any project. I just, I'm opening up that invitation and hoping that you and I can meet and work together in the future. And, and I am so excited to have met you. Thank you so, so much for being here. It's been a pleasure interacting with you. And honestly, I cannot thank you enough for doing this. Oh, thank you. The feeling is mutual. Thank you so much.